Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We have been in a series of guests uh, that are not just speakers of renown. Uh, They're friends, they're people that we know, their lives, and we know who they are. We began with Abdu uh, Murray a few weeks back. Alicia Wood was with us here last week, and now Stuart McAllister is here with us today. And I'd forgotten, Stuart and I were talking between services, and I'd forgotten there's actually a Detroit connection with Stuart as well. Alicia was educated in Detroit and has family here, and Abdu, of course, lives here. So I'll let him share that. Um, Stuart is one of the most brilliant people I know and most well-read, if I can risk kind of uh, misstating Kipling, an English author, even though he's... Scottish over here. Um, you know, you can walk with kings, yet still has a common touch. And so you're going to notice a little bit of an accent there. He'll explain whether he wants to about the De- uh, Detroit connection. Um, but he's gone from the streets of Glasgow uh, to streets all over the world, uh, not only just preaching the gospel, but arguing for the faith, and has been both brilliant and accessible in the process of that. I'm going to ask this morning if you'd really please very warmly welcome a good friend of mine, Stuart McAllister. Well, good morning, Rock Point. It is a pleasure to be back here. The atmosphere, your church, the staff, everybody, it really is a joy to be back. And I'm not just saying that um, because Randy's going to pay me later for saying it. Um, Actually, the the, the context of the family is a little bit one of these things you have to tell tongue in cheek because my dad was born in here now before, was born in Detroit. And he wasn't terribly thrilled about that. I'll tell you why later. In fact, what is interesting is my, my, uh, my wife's father was a soldier in the Second World War and fought in Europe and came back and had no time for Europeans. My dad had a problem with Americans, so we are glad that the two father-in-laws never met. I married an American and we are fine, so we're good, you know. Empire Strikes Back, by the way. Um, but my grandfather was here as a communist. He was in the Ford plant. He was a senior toolmaker. And, uh, you know, a unionizer and all this type of thing. And I don't know all the story, but he was, a, he was the product of the First World War. Uh, and Argyll and Southern, the Highlander, and, you know, fought and was wounded. Um, and had a lot of resentment against the rich and the wealthy. There were many good reasons why. Not everybody was a, a dyed-in-the-wool leftist wacko, you know, or something like that. There were reasons why these people chose the path they did, even if it was wrong. Um, but anyway, they went back to Scotland. And, of course, I was a part of that Scottish family. So I grew up in... Glasgow in Scotland. I still get a residual accent. I live in the South. I am a Southerner. I can talk right like that if you prefer. I can do, you know, <laughs> make R.C. Cullen and Moon Pie. <laughs> but if I do that, I probably get shot. So the difference is that being a Scot, I get confused in this country. America's amazing. You know, I find out that half the country's from Scotland from every time I go, so, oh, I'm from Scotland. You say, where? And then can't remember, but somewhere back in the distant past, there were Highlanders, you know, waving around, chasing Indians all over the place. Well, we're from them. 
But here's the difference between, there's four tribes in Britain. There was the British make up the, the, Welsh, the English, the Welsh, the Scots, and the Irish. So here's how it works. The English received the gospel because that was something they could make a culture from. The Welsh received it because it was something they could sing about. The Irish received it because it was something they could fight over. And we Scots received it because it was free. And that is a true story. So this morning I'm going to talk to you about or try to, <laughs> about what is really real and who says. <laughs> and I can imagine you're coming in, you're like, what? What's this all about? You know, you come in on Sunday morning, you come from different places in your world. You know, last night you had too much to eat, we'll not really say anything else. And you know, you're, you're coming in Sunday morning and you're a little bit jaded, maybe the kids didn't get up, maybe they did get up and that was the bigger problem. You know, you've got all kinds of issues in the car and, and we come here to... What is the really real and who says? Are we in for a philosophy list? No. Well, sort of. Um, but we're going to talk about this question because it's the question of, the biggest question we can deal with. It's a question that Americans are very confused about just now. It's a question that all over the world, you watch films and movies and magazines, everybody's got an opinion. But does anyone have an answer? And does it matter? Well, yes, it does. So let's turn to the book of Colossians. We'll begin there. And I want to tell you a story um, about how this gospel changed my life and how this idea of worldview takes shape in our world. Paul is writing to a church in Colossae, which you can still go to Western Turkey. You can walk around the little ruins of Laodicea and all around there in uh, uh, um, Pamukkale, where there's these hot fountains and that's alluded to in the book of the Revelation. And you can still see these remnants of that one time the little communion, the little community of God's people. And this is in the early days of the gospel. Something has happened in history. There's been a movement. There's been some events in Jerusalem. And those events have cascaded out around the Roman Empire. And here in this little place, there's a church, an ecclesia, a group of people called out who are living there. And Paul is writing to them some things too. He hasn't been to this church, but he's, he's, uh, he's writing with some instruction as an apostle. But I want you to hear these beautiful words from chapter 1 and verses 15 through 20. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now these are astonishing words. If you read the Bible, there's a several chapters. The first chapters are very fascinating. John chapter one, in which in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and so forth. Hebrews chapter one, which captures some of the same thing. Revelation chapter one. And here in Colossians chapter one, you have this, what theologians call Christology, this picture. But this isn't gentle Jesus making wild. This isn't the idea of a concept. This is an, a description of something that claims to be telling the story about everything. 
It's a claim about the whole of reality. It's talking about the universe and law and politics, everything in it, the world, everybody. It's all in here. Now, that may be absolutely true and incredibly wonderful, or it's absolutely ridiculous and a lot of nonsense. But it demands a choice. It means something, and that's what we have to understand. So, Paul, who's Paul writing to? Paul is writing to people, some of them are from Jewish background, they're still Jewish people who had heard that the Messiah, the Mishach, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah had come, really? In space-time history? So some of them were Jews and that was being debated still within the Jewish community. Many of them, more likely, were Romans and Roman polytheists, so they believed in all kinds of gods, not least that the emperor himself was God. So the socio-political context is charged, the religious context is diverse, and the challenges are very serious. So what Paul is saying here is amazing because he's introducing what we say, the evangelium, the gospel, as the truth. Paul isn't, of course, a postmodern relativist like many of us where he says, you know, truth is what I feel, truth is my emotions, truth is my taste, truth is my preference, truth is the power structure imposed upon me and I happen to be a white European male. I'm dead, by the way, because I don't have any credentials in culture. Um, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not just that he's saying that this truth is something independent and objective. That it's real. Wow. So he's not a truth. He's talking about the truth. Now, all those that he is talking to, everybody listening to Paul and the church, they already have beliefs. They were raised in their own culture, their own, by their own grandmothers and you know, granddads, and you know, they had a particular kind of food, and they had songs they sang, and people they voted for. Well, you didn't vote in those days, but you know what I mean. They, they had convictions, a moral vision of the universe. And here comes Jesus, this message saying, you probably got that wrong, because here's the real story about the universe, that there's a creator God, there's a covenant-speaking God, and that Jesus is the sum story of this little people, Israel, and all that happened with them because it was actually the story of the cosmos. What? Really? Hmm. You see, worldviews are hard things to get your head around. Some of you, now I realize you've got to, when you quote films, in my case, you've got to be careful because you're, you're going back 20 years, and that's a long time in some of your lives. 20 years ago, you said, oh, I just found a TV then, or, you know. So when I say the film, The Gods Must Be Crazy, anybody know the film, The Gods Must Be Crazy? Okay. So The Gods Must Be Crazy is one of those stories. It it wasn't a big budget film, but it was a funny film and it was a good film. It was an interesting film. So you have a tribe in Africa and a man is out uh, hunting or something one day and something bunk falls on his head and and he he picks it up. It's a Coke bottle. Hmm. What is a Coke? He doesn't know what a Coke bottle is. So he takes to the tribe that people are all asking and that the, the, the elders gather around and they all decide you have to send him off to find out the higher wisdom. What is this? The gods are speaking to us. Now, within the worldview of that time, that made sense. But they didn't do a higher critical analysis where they get a deconstruction project on the bottle. What is this, you know, let's say it was glass and where was it made? What was the, the, chemi- the chemical uh, content within here? What was the sort of at the trajectory from the velocity from the sky so that we could get a scientific and a naturalistic understanding? They had something that had meaning. Something had dropped in from above, bonked a man on the head. Now, they misunderstood what it was but they had a hard reality they were trying to interpret. Ever feel that life is like that? We've all got facts and data. Everybody's got an opinion. All kinds of data swimming around us. What is the nature of reality and who says? What is truth and does it matter? 
Well, let me talk very briefly about a day in the life of the apostles. You can see in Acts chapter 14, Paul is out on the, what, the missionary journey. They're preaching the gospel. And I think this would be a nightmare day for a church or for, for, for missionaries or writing home to your church. So what happens? They come into this community. Uh, there's a lame man and God by his grace moves. The power is present. He prays for this lame man. He jumps up on his feet. Wow, he, a healing in public. This overwhelming God's evidence and the power in the streets and the public square. What can you say? God's real, right? They recognize this. No, because the crowds immediately start responding and saying, oh, the gods have come down to us. And they start offering sacrifices to Paul and, and, and they call uh, Paul, uh, one of them Hermes. I mean, they're using the Greek ideas and basically Paul, they're freaking, whoa, whoa, guys, no, 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 that's not what happened. This, this, it's another God. It's the real God, not the one you think it is. And of course, they have a very logical debate. They sit down, have a, you know, a couple of lattes. They try and work it out. It doesn't work. The, the crowds come in. Some Jews show up from another place who add to the philosophical confusion, and Paul ends up stoned. Dear pastor, um, maybe you should reduce the support this week. Things aren't going so well here. Didn't, you know, we, we actually saw people saved, but they worshiped some other God at the end of it. What happened here? An event took place in real time and real history. People were really touched. It was an event that was initiated and ordered by the living God. The people had their own worldview. They misinterpreted the data because they received what they saw but misunderstood what they saw. They didn't have the truth of that event. So you had a real public phenomena misinterpreted. Any of this sound familiar about what's going on in our culture at the moment? Yeah. All views are not the same. When we see something, you're left with the, still with the question, how, what is truth and how do I know? And that, ladies and gentlemen, has become the nightmare of our time. You've got your facts, I've got my facts. You've got your interpreters, I've got my interpreters. Who's my tribe? Who's your tribe? Who do you watch? You watch Fox News? Well, I watch CNN. I watch MSNBC. Who's your gathering crowd? We're polarizing in front. It's not just in America. It's happening all over the world, except where it's controlled by authoritarian people in other parts of the world. But the heart of the question what is truth and how do we know does not go away from us? And this is an important question. Stephen Covey once said, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. What does that mean? This is not perspectivism. Covey's point is very valid. The world is out there. It is real. I'm standing on it. It bites me if it's just a dog. It's real. I can see it. But I interpret the world in here from my brain, from my understanding. So I have to put these, is there an objective reality beyond my emotion or is my perception all of reality? Well, that's up for grabs for some people. Rabbi Burns, the Scottish poet says, oh, to see ourselves as others see us. Actually, some of you wouldn't like that. <laughs> we see everybody else, we don't see ourselves. And then good old Dr. Nietzsche, there are no facts, just interpretations. Really? So let me ask you, Friedrich, is that a fact or is that an interpretation? <laughs> we can play philosophical mind games doing a class on literature, deconstructing the church, deconstructing the Bible, deconstructing uh, patriarchy, deconstructing everything. They're only, but still there are some facts being claimed and privileged. If deconstruction is the vision of the universe, then who deconstructs the deconstructionists? What privileged vantage point do they have that you don't have? Psychology, sociology, 
because basically they're, they're coming from some uh, suppressed, uh, silenced group of people, and they may well have been, because there's terrible injustice in the world. The Bible says that. There is objective reality, and we need to find it, and that's not easy. Here's a basic definition of for a worldview as we begin this, and we will be going to the Bible, so don't get afraid if you're going to bit and say, this is too full of it, I'm going out of here. I don't like this guy, he doesn't speak the Bible much. Sound like Jim Gaffigan on a Christian thing, I don't know. A, a worldview may well be defined as one's comprehensive framework of basic belief about things, but our talk, that's our confessed beliefs or our cognitive claims is one thing, and our walk, operative beliefs, is another, an even more important thing. A lived worldview defines one's basic convictions. It defines what one is ready to live for and die for, says John Cock, the philosopher. Now that means this worldview stuff, this is serious stuff, ladies and gentlemen. This isn't just about, you know, pick an idea, pick a philosophy and live your life. There are life and death issues. There are people dying. I saw last week, I was watching, I was up here at a camp, I saw a video of a man about two weeks ago, this pastor is out there and you see a picture in India, beautiful picture of him with his tie, with his family. And then about a week later, there's a picture of the same man lying with his throat cut and his hands bound, dumped on his doorstep by a group of Hindu radicals for his family. Families still believe, still go to church. They're there this morning. They haven't given up because they're suffering in this world. They've got an explanation. They didn't like it. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't fair. It wasn't nice. They still believe in Jesus. Wow. This stuff is scary stuff, isn't it? Consequences to this thing. So let me walk into this through some of my own story. And I begin with God on the move. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, 17 says, if any man is in creation, he's a new, anyone's in, a new, in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. And I can remember the day this happened for me. July 1977, Glasgow, Scotland. I'd left home when I was 15. Uh, I was an angry young man like many teenagers, many young women too at the same age. I thought I knew everything about reality. I wanted freedom. What was it? Get free, free from the man, free from mom and dad, free from life, free to do what I want. And then I went out and found out you have to pay bills and like pay rent and wash your clothes and oh yeah, make food. Where's mom's cooking? I mean, hello. Anyway, hadn't calculated on. Wasn't a lot of reason going on at 15. But uh, out I go, and, I'm, and, and then I, I start making, but I'm street smart, so I know um, I can't do much, but I lift weights, and I can fight, and end up working in a dance hall, so hey, that's pretty cool. You can come into a dance, a dance hall, and you fight, and they pay you for it. I mean, how cool is that? So I thought I was on a great career tra trajectory, and began to get a name for myself with people, you know, that if they wanted help, my friend, the other steward who was bigger than me, we would be available to help resolve crises in people's lives, especially involving money. Um, so then one day, I'm, uh, fast forward about five years, I think things are going pretty well. You know, I'm driving nice cars, an E-type Jaguar and all Mercedes. I was working now in Honest John car sales. And, um, you know, I, I'm managing the business for these guys while they're doing the other business. And things are going very well. And then I meet this woman who's older than me. She's a beautiful woman, and you know she's about six years older. She's a bit of a babe, and I'm so I've got the car, I've got the woman, I've got the light. Hey, this is really cool. And then one day she walks in and says to me, "What do you think about Jesus? Who? What do I think about what?" And I thought I thought she was joking, or maybe a philosophical thing. She was asking me because I was the great philosopher, you see. Um, not. Um, so she asked me, and I mean, I thought Jesus was past his sell-by day. I mean, I thought, you know, well, what, that God stuff, I mean, 
probably the people were so immature, so privileged, so stupid that, you know, a guy did come, I don't know what he did, but they, he was a spaceman and they thought he was God. So they worshiped him. That made sense to me. Eric von Daniken wrote a book on that. It sounded logical to me and that was enough for me to settle the God question. Except she got converted. Didn't know what that meant. Did she become a three-room in kitchen? I don't know what happened, but something happened. <laughs> a few weeks later, she calls me up. I go to this house, and I'm mad now. These Christians, ever now I do understand this, but they're interfering with my lifestyle. I'm going to put this right. So I go out there, loaded for bear, come in, and I get ambushed by grace. I find out in Glasgow, Scotland, that God is real, that Jesus is risen, that the Holy Spirit comes, and that sinners can be changed and saved. And by saved, I mean born again. Receive a new kind of life. Be changed. So something happened. I'm introduced then to the Bible. No idea what that was about in the beginning. And I was beginning a new life. Not just a new life, but a new kind of life. Something really, really happened. The word for love in the Christian understanding. C.S. Lewis talks about four kinds of love. Um, Storge, eros, philia, philia, and Agape. Agape is a love that is imported from above. It's something not of this earth. It's the God kind of love. That love came into my heart and I saw it in Joyce. I saw it, this transformational. Now, was that, oh, hey, Presto, you're a Mr. Goody Tushies. You walked out there, you're holy. No, not at all. I mean, I still had all this anger. I still had all this stuff to work through. But the grace of God met me and I found out the Lord was my shepherd and he began to teach me and to train me because now I was following a person, not an idea. There are ideas involved. There's lots of ideas. But it's not based on it. The person was the person of Christ who by his spirit was in my life and I had to learn. So now I'm in this, this thing, and believe me, Christianity has never been easy for me. I don't make go out there and say to people, buy this, this is an easy ticket. It's been hard being a Christian. It was a lot easier being an atheist, trust me. Because now I have to actually love people. <laughs> now I, have, I actually have to choose justice. Now I have to do all kinds of things that don't come naturally, but they do come by the grace of God if you let them into your life. So I had faith-seeking understanding. So how did it, learning to grow and share was a part of this. And there were several key texts. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence or watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the issues of life. The heart is not, meaning you sort of your emotional happy place. The heart in, in Lab in the Hebrew, the idea is that the control room of your existence, it's your entire worldview. It's getting to the heart of things, to the gut, to the, the essence of what you are. Watch over your heart with all diligence because from that flows the issue of life. Romans chapter 12, verse two, tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the removal of your mind. Anyone there? Hello? <laughs> Wakey, wakey, it's Sunday, I know you're a hard night, but wake up a bit. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's a lot of thought involved. Colossians chapter three, verse one, says that we are basically to, if we've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So I began to understand that I had to guard my heart, renew my mind, and keep seeking Christ. And progressively, over time, Things would start taking shape in my soul, in my understanding. So what did that look like? Well, of course, I, I, I mean, here's me from a, coming from a bouncer. I'm, I'm going out to say to people, it's, it's true. Uh, trust me, I know it sounds weird, Glasgow, Scotland, but hey, Jesus is real. 
I mean, he really has risen. He really is the creator. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Slamming doors in my face. I realized I needed to de de develop a little bit more subtlety, a little bit more understanding, and a little bit more answers. And that came over time. And here's what happens. The question of truth. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus doesn't say I'm an opinion. He doesn't say I'm a preference. He doesn't say I'm a good idea. He says, I am the truth. And if you go back to the Colossians chapter one passage, you see why. He is the creator. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and did what? Dwelt amongst us. Now that's an astonishing claim because either that's true or it's not. Really objective. It doesn't matter about my opinions. It doesn't matter about my feelings. It doesn't matter about my postmodern discourse. It doesn't matter if I've read Derrida and Foucault and whoever and all of, all of the above or Marx or Engels or Mohammed for that reason. This is a true statement or it's not. But in 21st century America, pluralism and relativism have to be faced. I am going to have to give reasons to people. Why do I believe in Jesus and not the alternatives? So what really mattered? That was the next question. What was really important to, I suddenly found out I had ethical questions. You know, if someone bothered me in the past, <laughs> you just hit them, right? I mean, it's all over and done. I mean, and that was a pretty good way to solve arguments, um, but it doesn't work when you become a Christian. I was told that. So I, I, I did get that quickly. Took a while, by the way, to get it on the inside. It was on the outside, but the inside took a while. So how was I gonna change? Well, Psalm 119, how can a young man uh, change his way? By taking heed according to thy word. With all my heart I have sought thee. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against me. So this, this became for me a key issue. I needed to get God's word into my heart. I needed to understand him. So I started reading the Bible. I didn't understand a lot of it in the beginning. I was reading 20 chapters a day for the first several years, and I did that for, for uh, trying to get a grasp on this, and then talking to people helped me to understand. And bit by bit, like I said, the entrance of thy words brings light. I began to see things, began to understand. Slowly but surely, things began to change in my consciousness, my values, my choices, because I understood that the central question was, am I going to live according to the flesh, or according to Stuart McAllister's history, or according to my cultural tradition, or according to my psychological makeup and damage, or am I going to live according to what Jesus says? So obedience became the issue, which meant I had to learn, therefore, that there was also purpose and direction. I love this, where here's Paul talking about his own experience, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet now I but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Wow. And then he goes on in Philippians chapter 121, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those are astonishing words. And I can remember several weeks, I was just a young believer. In fact, that was a bit of the novelty because I'd went to this camp, but this time I'm benching 360 and I'm deadlifting five feet. So I was a little bit like this, you know, when I was walking around and... Um, so all these young guys, and I was the, in Scotland, we say the trophy of grace, you know, because they didn't get many converts like this one. And I was driving a Mustang, which was unusual in Scotland as well. So I go to this Christian camp, and I've got my barbells with me, so I'm working out during the day. And, and I hear these things, and I heard this message on the Lordship of Christ, and the words I heard, I don't know if someone said them, was all or nothing. That God wasn't asking for a part of my life. He wasn't asking for a piece of my consciousness. He wasn't asking. He was saying, it's all or nothing. That's what the gospel is. Yeah. 
And I agreed with that. And I said yes, and I've been following him ever since. And it's a great story. But I had to learn. I was under new management. How should I then live? You see, there was a clash of values because someone out there, the culture, somebody always said that some other value statement for my life. There was a clash of desires because this flesh thing that I'm living in, you know, eh, I've, got, I've got desires. There's things I want to do, but there's things I need to do. And I needed to learn the, the voice of the Holy Spirit and fight that. And there was a clash of wills. It's so much easier to do what I want than to do what God wants. But here was my problem as a Christian. I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to grow in faith. I'm trying to grow in my understanding. And here's what I realized. I wasn't being taught widely. Do you many know the old movie, Honey, I, I Shrunk the Kids? You know, the Disney movie? Well, I think in some of our churches, I think we say, Honey, I Shrunk the Gospel. Because what we've done is we've taken the Jesus story of the cosmos, of all reality, of all creation, beginning at all time, all the cosmos, and we shrunk it then that Jesus wants your heart. Really, he doesn't just want the heart. He wants the whole package. Because he is the whole package. In the beginning, God. In the end, God. And so I, was, I needed to really understand the scripture. What does it say? I was searching to try to understand its true meaning. And thirdly, I was trying to apply it to every aspect of life. So my horizons, my horizons broadened. I want you to listen to Paul here in Philippians chapter three. And I love this because you see the journey in Paul's own life as he grew and encountered Jesus. Remember, he's been raised as a devout Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. But listen to his words in Philippians chapter three, verses seven through 11, as he's talking about past and the present. He says this, but wherever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may be gained Christ. Now, for those of you who are, don't maybe know some of the Greek, and trust me, I don't know a lot of it, but I know just enough to be stupid. Um, the word there, skubala, means, you know, if you're downtown Detroit, someone would be walking their dog, and you may have stood in skubala at times. You get my feel here? This is what he's saying. I count these things to be rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his... Wait a minute, we don't want that, but do we? We're, we're, we're Americans, I know we're some students too from abroad, but we don't fellowship of his sufferings, really? Does that come? Yes, it does. That's part, part of the package. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. These are powerful words. So I go to a conference. I'm invited to be a guest of the Lausanne Conference in Germany in 1986. I'm sitting there with some of these Dignity of Dr. John Stott, who speaks with a proper English accent. And all these, I mean, some bishops and all whatever. But I mean, these were, they were people who really loved the Lord. They were serious scholars. And I heard about the Christian worldview. I've been a Christian for 10 years. And all of a sudden, I hear about the Christian worldview. And now I understand my, my lens was about this size. And it went pop like this overnight. And things began to fall into place. I began to understand that history and architecture and great meals and, and great smells and good music and, and good films, it all cohered. 
Because the Bible doesn't begin with sin, the Bible begins with God and with creation. So Christians who start off with everything is bad and get into the church and hide from the world and throw up barriers and throw throw out paper planes, Jesus loves you, hi duck, in case they come in. Um, That's nonsense. We are called to be in the world, not of the world, for the world, because this world is his world. He made it and it is damaged. But it ain't over yet. You can't know the end till you get to the end. And the end is coming. The king had the first word, by the way. The king has the last word. Don't forget that. It's not who's in the White House. It's not who's in the Kremlin. It's not who's in charge of China. It's not who's in part of food supplies and and supply chains. It's not who's in charge of COVID. By the way, where did that little thing show up from? We are not in control. We were never in control. We will never be in control. We can pretend we are. It only takes a storm or a power outage or a little virus to show us how weak we actually are. So my vision was open, expanded. And just like C.S. Lewis, he said these words after being a confirmed atheist until Tilly in his 30s, raised, he knew the Church of Ireland, he knew enough about Christianity to be dangerous, and he rejected it intellectually until he also was captured by grace, surprised by joy in his words. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Lewis, as a classical scholar, saw something. Christianity was not just about knowing stuff. It was about seeing life differently. It was about experiencing the grace of God. It was about the lights being switched on. If any man is a new Christ, he's a new creation. It's an ontological change. When you receive new life, you are born again. So we can argue about philosophy and ideas until we go round and round in circles. But a man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an argument. And if you have truly been born again, you know it right there. You might not be able to argue, answer every question, but you know, you know, you know that Christ is real and that he is risen and that we are changed. So this is what it means. Learning to think, to see. And I then had to understand that relating to others was a key issue. In Matthew 22, verse 39, um, Jesus, uh, the second part of the great commandment is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm, well, that's a hard one, isn't it? It's much easier to hate your neighbor, categorize them, demonize them, put them in a box, ignore them, or just avoid them. Or politically control them if we can get the White House or whatever. That's not the gospel. The gospel sees them as a human being. Maybe dead in trespasses and sins, yes. They cannot see unless grace touches them. And they cannot see grace if we don't go to them with light and love and sharing and let God use us as instruments of his grace. But it means you're going to have to be incredibly patient, put up with a lot of crap, be, be all kinds of things will happen. But love will find a way because it found a way to you. Because that's what love does. It's not love instead of truth or truth instead of love. It's love spoken truthfully and truth operated lovingly. Held together so that we don't sacrifice. Stephen Covey says, seek first to understand, then to be understood. What would happen in our world if that happened? No, no, wait a minute, let me explain. No, 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 no. If if I wanted your opinion, I'd give it to you. (laughs) 
That's what so much of our television is like, isn't it? So much of our news program, you know, I've got all the answers. You just need to shut up and listen and receive. Os Guinness, my friend, says this, comparison is the mother of clarity. So I began to understand, you can actually work with these worldviews, but are there things we can measure? Can we know exhaustively? Not necessarily, but we can compare things, and we know good from bad. If you didn't, you couldn't buy good food. You couldn't buy a good car. You couldn't go on a holiday. You couldn't get a good mate. Well, some of you might be revising that, but you know what I'm saying. Um, comparison is the mother of clarity. We do this all the time. Here's Wilhelm Dilphy, which I love this on turn, figuring out at the heart of life. The riddle of existence is always bound organically, bound up organically with that of the world itself and with the question of what I am supposed to do in this world, why am I am in it, and how my life in it will end. Where did I come from? Why do I exist? What will become of me? This is the most general question of all questions and the one that most concerns me. Hmm, I guess it does. You see, we all live in a world that's also marked by an incredible amount of evil, isn't it? Suffering, existence is paradox. You see, the problem of evil is a question that's haunted humanity from the beginning of still does. The problem is, is there any worldview, is there any way the world that looks at the world that can deal with both bombs and beauty living together? Because that's our world. You can wake up in the morning, someone's being shot and look at your, your flowers in the garden and think, where did that beautiful thing come from? You can see incredible displays. It's the mixture that confuses us. How can these things coexist? How can we explain that? Well, the Christian narrative does explain it. It doesn't make it easy because it cost the love of the Father coming into this world as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, walking the streets of Palestine, being rejected, being threatened in death as a child, seeing suffering, being taken as an innocent, misunderstood, hung on a cross, executed by the Romans, rejected by his own people that he had come for, that he had made in the very city that was the city of the great king, Jerusalem, the place of Shalom. He died there. But he didn't stay dead, did he? Because he rose from the dead. Because that was the promise the story contained. And that in rising from the dead, he shed abroad something. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The possibility of new life. He paid the price of... All this was going back. We don't know all, all the details. We do if we read the scriptures. There was theological things happening. There were historical things happening. There were psychological and emotional things happening. There were things that actually happened events in time and reality changed. And so I can stand here on his authority, not mine, and tell you that he has risen. And if you open the door of your heart, you'll come in. You see, truth is demanding. There's implications and imperatives of this thing. What we know, how do we know? So what did that do in my life and my pursuit of worldview? Well, personal growth and education. I began to see new applications. I began to break down this shrunken gospel that I had been fed. There was a public, private, sacred, secular. There was a kind of a dualism. And I was, you know, the kind of Christians, and I meet them all the time. You meet these alpha men and women who come in and they're, you know, they're corporate, you know, just raiders or whatever. They're very good at their jobs. They're, but they're babies in church and they're very polite when they're here and they go out Monday morning and they're back in their place and boy, get out of their way. Oh, some of you are those people though, aren't you? Because you don't know how to integrate your faith 
and your life. The, the Jesus you take with you in here, you take into the marketplace, you take into the streets, you take into the home, you take into the kitchen, you take into the university, you take everywhere. And the word must become flesh in you as well as through you. Does it? Evangelism and witness, this was huge. Began to grasp how other views were challenging. Of course, in the beginning, I was a person with an experience and a few Bible verses. I had no explanation. So I met Muslims in, in, on the street. I met, in Scotland, it was always secular atheists of various varieties who thought I was an idiot. Who'd, I mean, haven't you know that science disproved God? Don't you know that Yuri Gagarin went into space and the Russians told him they didn't see God? So, I mean, there's no God. I mean, it's that simple, right? So I had all these experts. Everybody knew that the Bible was flawed except me, apparently, because I was the only idiot that basically in a room, did, did God sneak into that room? What happened here? You know, I'm, just, I'm quite sure it was God. It certainly felt like God. I mean, I, uh, I, I, you know, I'm talking to him. I seem to be hearing him in some. And these other people, maybe they're all weird. Maybe, maybe it is psychological. Maybe I smoke something. No, I don't because I don't smoke. Um, whatever. But I began to find out that I had questions in return. Instead of my Christianity and the gospel and Jesus always being in the fireplace, always being on the defensive, the people asking me the questions weren't answering them themselves. So I started looking out for some questions. And here are some of the questions I found. Worldviews, every worldview, nobody lives nowhere. Everybody is situated, whether it's Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, atheist, postmodernist, whatever. We're all situated somewhere, and we see the world from somewhere. So what do worldviews do? First thing is, it gives us a background theory about the nature of the universe, our ultimate reality. Is everything matter? Is everything spirit? Am I the result of slime plus time plus chance? What am I? You're probably wondering that, but that's, that's part of the question. A theory of who or what humans are. Are we just matter in motion in time? A, the a diagnosis, what is wrong in life and with me? And an answer or a solution to putting things right. Marx answered these questions. Chairman Mao answers these questions. Madonna answers these questions, by the way. <laughs> All kinds of people. Pixar answers these questions. And the Bible answers these questions. So I began to understand my job as a Christian was to learn to understand them and then find a way of translation. How do I communicate? Because love is the heart of communication, isn't it? So I have to learn to listen, to learn to hear people and to build bridges into their life, to have compassion and empathy. Love calls me to witness. Love calls me to understanding, but love insists on the truth. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I have to tell the truth to the best of my knowledge and let the person make up their, they may say that's nonsense, fine, okay, walk away. All I can do is tell you what I believe is the truth and let you search the evidence out. But here's what I found, what I would call trial and error. You know the old saying, to a man with a hammer, everything is a nail? And some of you live with someone like that, so you know what I'm talking about. There are dangers in life, and there's three dangers in the Christian life I've seen with these ideas, like apologetics or worldview. The first thing is getting lost or too enamored with theories or tools. So I read every book, I go to every seminar, I master everything because I think my job is David against Goliath. I have to be, you know, out there, you know, fighting for Jesus and boxing the enemy. And no, you don't. You have to follow him and learn humility and learn there's always people out there who know a lot more than you do. Probably a lot more articulate, but that doesn't take away your gospel. Because if you know him, you can still share the love of God, no matter how imperfectly or limited you do so. But our humility is in trusting Christ. 
The second danger was putting Christ-centeredness and intimacy into second place because that became, oh, that's for baby Christians. I'm in the serious stuff. I, you know, I'm a warrior for Jesus. I go out there and, you know. And the third would be danger overconfidence in knowledge. Knowledge doesn't save us. A certain amount does. But it's not knowledge. It's Christ who saves us. And that's what people need. They need to see Jesus. If America is going to be changed in any sense, it's not because of the White House. It's not because of the economy. It's because we show a better gospel than we've been doing. And then we tell a better story once we show a better way. So we own own some of this. We've got a lot of repenting to do. But we can do that. Because God will hear us. So let's sum this up with living in truth. A Dutch friend that I used to travel with, I like this because he used to always call me brother, brother Stuart, you know, B-R-U-D-D-E-R, brother, brother Stuart. And I was waxing eloquent as a young guy because, you know, it's amazing how much you know when you're in your 20s. You know, I knew everything. Didn't you know everything? You know? Now I'm in my 60s. I find I don't know very much at all, but I knew a lot more when I was younger, so I don't know what happened. I lost it somewhere. <laughs> but he says to me, he said, brother, people do not care how much you know, but they do know how much you care. I'm so, yeah, look, look, Hank, look, you know, you've got to be clear about the gospel, you've got to be clear about truth. And he just, he just put, smiled at me, brother, if they don't see your love, they'll never hear your words. How true he was. We need grace and truth. So let's look at three things quickly. Colossians chapter one, verses nine and 10. We're here this morning, some of your visitors, some of your congregants, but we're all seeking something. Some are followers, some are undecided, some are seeking. But to those who are followers, here's what Paul would say. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. To walk in a manner worthy of of the Lord. Christianity, true Christianity, is a show and tell religion. If nobody's talking to you, maybe you're not showing very much. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not, I mean, trust me, you spend five minutes with me and Randy will confirm this. I'm no perfect person and I, don't, I, I can't be that. But I am different, not just because of my accent, but because of Christ. And I know that difference. And I know that difference makes a difference. Walk worthily of your king. Show his good news. Secondly then, be aware. See that no one takes you captive. What does it say? It's Colossians chapter two and verses four through eight. I say this so that no one will dilute you with persuasive argument from Google or what's that? Oh, sorry. Even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. In Christ, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of CNN or Fox News. Sorry, I, 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 I didn't have a good night last night. I'm probably asleep. Let me repeat that. According to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. See, ladies and gentlemen, this Jesus stuff is all about him from beginning to end and even in the middle. That's why in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, 
Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace. grace. Wow. As though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to res- you should respond to each person. It struck me a few weeks ago, I was doing a, se- a series on John, and I was looking at this, how often grace precedes truth, and particularly in John 1, look at the order. And I wondered about that. You see, when truth comes to me, I'm like Jack Nicholson in The Few Good Men. And when he's asking Tom Cruise, what is it you want? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> no, that's, that's my word. Watch it online. I mean, it's a great movie. But you know what? I can't handle the truth. That's why grace precedes truth. That's why God comes to us. The grace of Jesus that sees me as I am with all my warts and all my flaws absorbs the sin on my behalf. And now I can handle the truth because he takes the penalty and the pain. When you talk to people who don't know Christ, when you talk to friends who don't know Christ, are you giving them truth? And when you're, you're not evangelizing them, you're using some kind of gospel mugging. Or are you giving them grace? Not give up the truth, but grace makes the way for truth. And that's what we need in this world. So James Sire says, a worldview is situated in the self, the central operating chamber of every human being. It is from this heart that all one's thoughts and actions proceed. So I know you've been in a series with the church. I know you've got a great pastor and great team in this church. It's a wonderful church. And God's got you on a journey. But ladies and gentlemen, we know America's in trouble. We know Detroit's in trouble. We can't wring our hands and bark into the darkness. We can't give aggression and hatred and anger and belligerence as an answer. We can give the grace of God, the kindness of God. And when this worldview stuff circles back, it comes back to one word, Jesus. That's it. In the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this lovely church, for your grace in all of our lives, for hearing us, meeting us, and giving us what we don't deserve. We ask for today the power of the Holy Spirit, for hope, for joy, for healing, for any who don't know you to find you, for any who do but are struggling to be healed and to be helped, and for this day to be a day that honors your great name. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you, and thank you.